Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism, Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome to our current Becoming Byzantine webinar. Great to be with everybody again. Um, great to see everyone as we journey through Lent. Um, happy uh, commemoration of St. John Climacus today, a uh, great saint who gave us the ladder of divine ascent. So hopefully your Lenten journey is progressing nicely. So it's good to be with everybody again. Um, before we get started, always a good idea to begin with prayer. So Father Michael, would you lead us in prayer, please? Sure. Um, as this is the, uh, we're starting the fifth week of uh, the Great Fast, and on Thursday morning, uh, or Wednesday evening, wherever parish decides, we're going to sing the great canon of uh, St. Andrew of Crete. So I thought I would take uh, one of the stikira from the Wednesday evening Vespers, the night before mm. the night before the Matins, and make that our prayer today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In my wretchedness, I have fallen among the thieves of my own thoughts. My mind has been despoiled, and cruelly have I been beaten. All my soul is wounded, and stripped of the virtues I lay naked upon the highway of life. Seeing me in bitter pain and thinking that my wounds could not be healed, the priest neglected me and would not look at me. Unable to endure my, my soul-destroying agony, the Levite, when he saw me, passed by on the other side. But you, O Christ my God, you were pleased to come, not from Samaria, but incarnate from Mary. And in your love for mankind, grant me healing and pour, my, pour upon me your great mercy. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this fasting season. As we prepare to celebrate your Passover, Passover, your Pascha, we ask, Lord, that you continue to heal us of all woundedness, to bring us into your joy, into your life, and into your communion. Bless our time together tonight. We give glory to you together with your Father, who has no beginning, your most holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Father Michael. Appreciate that. All right. So, as we normally begin our sessions together, just to get acquainted, um, introducing everyone on our panel this evening, our uh, special guest, right um, first and foremost, Father Michael Wynn. Uh, Father Michael is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Archeparchy of Winnipeg, up there in the Great White North, uh, and he's the English language editor of the text that we've been using for this series, uh, Christ Our Pascha, uh, published by the, the Synod of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. So, Father Michael, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, Father Daniel Dozier a regular with the Becoming Byzantine series, kind of the brains behind the operation. Uh, Father, Father Daniel is a priest of the Ruthenian Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix. He is also the author of the 20 Answers on Eastern Catholicism book, 
published by Catholic Answers Press, a very, very helpful guide for an introduction to things Byzantine. Uh, he also is the founder of In Ministry Development, which is the Byzantine series. So, Father Daniel, always good to see you. Good to have you with us again. Thank you, Robert. Glad to be here. And Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, always good to see you. Um, he is a deacon, a Ukrainian Catholic deacon, uh, doctor, and a creator of the very, very helpful east2west.org. That's east, the number two, west.org, another great website for uh, an introduction to things Byzantine. So great to see you again, Father Deacon. Thank you, Robert. Always good to see you as well. And sadly, we're missing tonight our, our regular producer, Miss Bianca Gill, but I'm sure she will be back with us next month. She's probably uh, wrangling her children, which is something I, I can certainly appreciate. It's, it, it's a full time and sometimes it's just too much going on for a mom. So actually, she says she's here. So I, I just oh, got to I'm going I'm to go ahead and, and uh, admit her to the panel. So it's great. I'm glad she's able to join. Ah, Let me see. Perfect timing. Yeah, <laughs> because honestly, I don't know what we would do without Bianca. I don't think we would get through. We would get lost, and you know everything would crash. You know it would crash up, down up upon our heads without her. My humble self. My name is Robert Klesko. I'm a a deacon candidate for the Archaparchy of Pittsburgh. Um, so, got one more year in the deacon program. So please keep me in your prayers. And my brood is. In fact, they're sleeping right now, at least like five out of the six. Um, we kept them up late last night watching a movie. So we cannot do these without the support of um, our audience. Uh, we rely on you for attending. We rely on you for questions. We rely on you for your financial support to keep this good work going. So if you would like to make a tax deductible donation, to keep this ministry ongoing. I am posting a link there in the chat. Um, you can go to parish page. Um, he's got a nice giving section there. And down at the bottom left, there's a little box that says support becoming Byzantine. If you click on that, um, it's really, really simple to make a donation. And that is just um, very, very important and helpful. All right. Uh, also, if you happen to miss uh, any of these Becoming Byzantine sessions. We have a YouTube channel uh, called Becoming Byzantine, and that link is coming in the chat to you right now. If you could go to that web, uh, that uh, YouTube channel, uh, subscribe, and leave a like for any videos that you happen to like. Um, those things help our algorithm, our YouTube algorithm, so that if people are searching, you know, Byzantine Christianity on YouTube, um, our stuff gets shot up to the top. The more likes we have, the more subscribers we have, just helps everybody out. So um, that is our housekeeping for right now. And now to dive into uh, our topics for today. But before we dive into Christ our Pascha, we thought uh, being as on the Feast of the Annunciation this past week, the 25th, um, our Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, in communion with the bishops of the world, asked the Universal Church to offer a consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary um, of the whole world, um, of all peoples, but specifically Russia and Ukraine. So this is a very, very 
historic moment, a very sacred moment. Um, but it might be, you know, this, uh, the, the Immaculate Heart of Mary is a Western devotion. Um, it's not particularly well known uh, in the East. We have our own, you know, Marian devotions. So I thought we could spend a couple of minutes uh, here discussing that act of consecration and, and how, can, how can we see it through uh, a Byzantine lens. So I'm just going to throw that out to our panelists, uh, whoever is inspired to respond, go right ahead. I'll jump in first. So I look at it this way, uh, whatever imagery is used, whether it's, you know, Western or Eastern, you know, sacred heart or not, or I mean, immaculate heart or not. I think the key thing is this is really an act of entrustment, you know, entrusting this horrible situation to the intercession of our lady. And uh, I know some people got a little worked up about the language being seen as, as too specifically Western. Frankly, at this point in time, I don't care. Uh, I think any kind of prayer is welcome. And of course, we can approach this prayer in our own tradition, in our own way. But the fact that people are praying about the situation and giving it to Our Lady, I think is something really, really worth celebrating. Uh, one thing that I experienced on Friday, so as you know, bishops all over the world were, were doing this, right? Now, my bishop, uh, he was actually in Poland right now trying to help the refugees. But locally, the Roman Catholic bishop invited myself and my pastor, Father Andre Kelt, um, to their cathedral. Uh, they had a, a mass for the Annunciation, and then they did the consecration, and uh, it was amazing. The cathedral is huge, and it was standing room only. The bishop was amazed how many people came, and people were there because they care about the situation in Ukraine. They care about the Ukrainians who are suffering, and everyone there poured their heart into praying, praying for this nightmare to end. So again, whatever the specifics are, it was all about giving the situation to Mary, and it was a beautiful, moving experience. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. <clears throat> um, we did, um, uh, for our, uh, uh, our Byzantine Catholic shrine, right now we have the only Byzantine Catholic, or excuse me, the only Catholic Marian shrine in the state of Washington, mm. and, uh, and so I realized my image is, is frozen there. But uh, we have our the only uh, Marian Catholic or Marian Catholic shrine in Washington, and so we took the opportunity to make the consecration. But we used a prayer that was slightly different than the one that the Holy Father um, had provided. Um, I went back and uh, found uh, an act of entrustment, uh, act of consecration, if you will, to the Theotokos that had been written primarily by Saint John of Damascus, and so we used that particular prayer. Uh, to St. John of Damascus, and then incorporated into that uh, prayers of, of uh, entrustment and consecration for both, both Russia and Ukraine. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think it's possible to find a language around this idea of, of filial entrustment and, and asking for the prayers and intercession of the, of the Panagia, the, the Holy uh, Virgin Mary, without you know, losing any of our Eastern identity. And, and you, you, it's, it's tough to beat St. John of Damascus. Um, in fact, what I'll do is uh, a little bit later, I'll upload a copy of that prayer for those who might be interested, uh, just to kind of get some of the unique language that uh, St. John used, if, if, if you'd like to, to pray that prayer. Very good. Father Michael, anything yeah, to add? I, I agree. Um, um, some people talked about the word consecration 
And I think it was you, Father Daniel, on your Facebook talk to, as, a, as a, an act of entrustment. And, and that's exactly how I understand it. And I, I think um, um, of the pr prayer that we offer to the Mother of God uh, on the first two weeks of August and how we supplicate her for aid um, and that we continue to ask for her supplication for Ukraine and for Russia. Um, it couldn't wait. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh, actually we 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 understand the Mother God to be the foremost intercessor, and so um, asking her for her prayers for Ukraine and for Russia to end the war, for peace, and but also for forgiveness and and for dialogue to to take place. You know, I think that that's important. And we prayed in our parish. We had uh, we had this service, and we some instead of the usual prayer we put in the prayer that uh, pope francis had prayed i thought it was a very beautiful prayer mm -hmm. um and um it was it was longish but it was very good uh, people told me oh, we were waiting for you to mention ukraine and russia it comes at the very end of the prayer but it's it was there it was there so yeah and one, one other thing that i would add to this too is this uh, sister vasa who's a wonderful uh, Russian nun and a uh, member of Rokor, who's also opposed to the war. And um, uh, she had expressed something which I, th I thought was very interesting, this idea of the Immaculate Heart of Mary being a, a devotion that originates in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And that, in fact, is not the case at all. Uh, and I just wanted to make a comment about that because I kept hearing this repeated even by some Byzantine Catholics. And uh, it, it, the fact of the matter is that the devotion to the, the heart of Mary as, as a separate devotion, uh, you, you find its roots in St. Ambrose and St. Augustine. Uh, more formally, you start to see something emerging in the 12th and 13th century. Um, you know, this is long before, you know, this idea of the immaculate um, conception is is in, settled in any way, uh, you know, from a from a doctrinal or dogmatic um, point of view. So so this idea that somehow or another, you know, she felt that it would be offensive to the Orthodox, you know, that uh, potentially, even though they'd appreciate the prayers, you know, to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, when uh, it it just appears to be more of a, a, a confusion because of the association with the word immaculate, which by the way appears all over the place in Orthodox liturgy in reference to, you know, oh, Immaculate Virgin. I mean, you know, you can find that pretty much anywhere. So it's one of those things. I think it's more the specific devotion to the heart of Mary, um, but the word immaculate, because it doesn't really resonate, immaculate heart doesn't really resonate in, in the Orthodox or the Byzantine tradition. I think they, they immediately assumed it had something to do with the Immaculate Conception doctrine or dogma. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, very good. I think Robert's frozen. I think he is too. While he's frozen, I'll take this opportunity to tell you that I, I uploaded the act of entrustment. So it's in the chat. So if you want to uh, download that, you all have access to that now. Uh, this uh, originates primarily from St. John of Damascus uh, with some, uh, some edits and modification there too. So am I back everybody? Okay. All right. Good. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. It, my internet has been, has been, shoddy shoddy of late you know the the devil is always at work attacking our internet connection um 
But just to add and to kind of conclude this, this topic, I can relay the experience that I had. Um, my eldest son and I uh, attended the local Roman Catholic Cathedral of St. Paul's uh, in Birmingham. Um, and the service there, uh, you know, I was, I was told, oh, it's going to be short, going to be a short service. Um, it wasn't, it was an hour and 20 minutes. So uh, but it was, yeah, <laughs> but it was beautifully done. Um, it really was. Um, and to see everyone come together um, to, to implore the mother of God for her intercession um, during this really critical time in, in the history of our world, and to see that outpouring of love toward the mother of God um, was really important. Um, it really brought, and, and for me to see it, for my eldest son to see it, you know, he even remarked as we were going home, he's like, dad, that was, that was really important, wasn't it? Um, you know, and he recognized that, um, you know, so he, he keeps coming to me and asking questions, you know, what's going on in Ukraine today? Is it any better? You know, so, so that kind of engagement uh, with, with our local Catholic community um, during this time in history, uh, really important, really a grace, grace-filled moment. So, um, I'm glad everyone uh, of our panelists had had that uh, that encounter. Uh, if any of our uh, listeners want to share uh, br briefly in the comments, just if, if they went to uh, uh, an act of consecration on on the 25th uh, in their own parishes, whether they be Byzantine Catholic or Roman Catholic, uh, feel free to leave a, a comment in the chat and. Uh, maybe you have a particular insight that's worth sharing with the rest of the group. So by all means, two really quick things. Um, number one, if anybody had questions from last month's webinar, feel free to put your questions or comments in the chat. If you have any questions about the material we're going to cover today, which is the mystery of repentance and the mystery of the holy anointing. So those two great mysteries of healing in our church among the seven sacraments, um, by all means, put your questions in the chat, and we will try to get to some of those today. Um, your questions are a fuel for our panelists. Um, really, you fuel the conversation, so the more questions we get, uh, the better. And of course, if we can't get, get to everyone's questions, uh, we do take them down, and we will try to get to them, or at least some of them, in our next webinar next month. So this evening, uh, we're talking about Christ our Pascha, uh, paragraph numbers 447 through 469, uh, again, on the two mysteries of healing, um, the mystery of repentance or confession or reconciliation, and then the mystery of holy anointing. Um, so Christ our Pascha starts with the mystery of repentance or confession. Um, and in Christ our Pascha, number 451 to 452, um, I thought it was particularly interesting because it discusses this mystery as part of the struggle of the spiritual life, um, kind of that struggle to confront our own weaknesses and to work through them. So, Father Daniel, I thought I would pick on you because you're still a baby priest. Yep. Um, uh, what, what insights can you give us from your pastoral ministry as to how this mystery brings healing to our weaknesses? It, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I have to say, for, for me, 
I hearken back to my first experience as a layman going to confession. And I was in graduate school um, in, uh, in Virginia and was attending during the six-week time period, uh, Holy Transfiguration, or HT as it's called, in McLean, which is just a wonderful parish. Father Joseph Francavilla of, of, of blessed uh, memory was the pastor there. And I remember for the first time going to confession in the Byzantine tradition, and I walked up to the icon of Christ. And there, Father Joe was, was standing next to the icon. and I was facing Christ, and I was confessing my sins. And I had this tremendous sense that this was, first of all, not just a sacramental encounter, it was a personal encounter. And so the priest was standing beside me as a witness to my confession. And so as I, I was pouring out my, my sins, I, I suddenly had this deepening awareness of this encounter with Christ uh, that was as vivid as, you know, the healing that we heard about today, uh, you know, in... Um, uh, in uh, uh, Mark's gospel, you know, where, where suddenly, you know, Christ is, is hearing me, uh, he's hearing my need, and he's healing. So, so this, for me, became sort of the root of an understanding of confession that, that changed my life. And it was part of the reason, part of the thing, one of the things that really drew me into the Byzantine tradition was this sense of, you know, Christ touching me, healing me, speaking to me through the ministry of the priest, but, but I'm making my confession to him. So I try to bring that into my own sense of what's happening in, uh, in the confession. Uh, you know, we call it the mystery of repentance. It's also called a baptism of tears. Um, I see myself as being a witness to the words that a person is speaking to Christ. And, and after their confession, I say, thank you for your humble confession to the Lord. I always try to re remind them. In fact, when I would go to confession, I'd say, Father, I want to tell the Lord I'm sorry for this. And, uh, and, and I, I try to encourage that sense of personal encounter. I'm just there to hear them, to offer counsel, uh, to hopefully give them hope, but then to use this to build their spiritual lives. This is, this is a liturgical action, which means, in a sense, it's really an act of praise. It's, and, and, and in the midst of praise, our sins are forgiven. We are lifted up. We are reoriented towards worship again. Uh, away from the worship of the world and the flesh and the devil and reoriented to, to the worship of God. So, so I feel that my role is, is, is really there to be a witness for the church, but primarily to be an instrument of Christ. And so for, for people who are nervous or, you know, I, I just say, it's okay. Just, you know, say what you want to the Lord. Come, come and speak to the Lord and I'll, I'll just be here beside you. You know, it, it makes things a little bit easier. So that's, so that's two years of, of hearing confessions. You know, I also get asked, by the way, Father, do you remember, do you remember my sins? <laughs> you know, from confession. Father Michael's probably been asked the same thing. Father, do you ever remember my sins? And I, what I tell them is, they're not mine to remember. Th these are given to God. They're, they're not mine to remember. And, and that's, and that's the, the earnest truth. So anyway, so that's, those are my insights so far. Very good. It reminded me while you were speaking, um, Pope Francis is so keen on that notion of accompaniment. Um, but very, very seldom do I hear that word accompaniment connected to the sacrament of confession. But precisely what you were describing, if that's not accompaniment, I don't know what is. 
because it precisely is. And it's, it's accompaniment where really where people need it most, where people are hurting often as a consequence of, of their own struggles and their own sinfulness. Um, so that's, that's incredibly important. Um, and that's, that's for us to embrace that accompaniment and, and to frequent that, you know, frequent the, the mystery of repentance. Now, that being said, um, people are still very nervous about approaching this mystery. Um, and I think uh, a, a key kind of misunderstanding is perhaps, you know, people approach and they think, well, the priest is going to judge me. Or they're afraid because, you know, uh, way back when, 30 years ago, you know, sister uh, so-and-so sister taught me, all right, when you go, you list your sins and you start with the serious ones. And they, they have this very legal mindset when it comes to approaching the mystery of repentance. So for those who perhaps have fallen away from the mystery of, of repentance, Father Michael, could you share with us some counsel um, as to how to invite those people back who maybe still are, are timid and are, are afraid of judgment or maybe are, are approaching this, this mystery from a sense of, of legalism? Sure. If you think it's hard to go to confession, you should be a priest and, and then have to go to a brother priest and say, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, um, I, I suppose, I suppose uh, I, I'd like to answer on on two things, uh, two, two 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 ways. One is is a comment just upon the actual physicality uh, of confession, how, how confession is um, celebrated. I'll, I'll be celebrated because it is a mystery, right? And um, at least in the Ukrainian Catholic Church in North America, uh, the Latin practice of having confessionals is still rather large. Uh, I have confessionals in my church. People prefer to go to the confessional um, because of uh, uh, they want to be anonymous. Although they're outside, Father, I'm each in the confessional. So, so, uh, um, but there's a perhaps a type of um, people feel secure of being able to to speak without anyone else hearing. In 1990, when I was in Ukraine and went to the Church of the Holy Transfiguration in Lviv, the first one to declare itself Catholic, um, just before Ukraine declared independence, um, I was there for Divine Liturgy on a Sunday at the end of July. Uh, I was part of a, a touring marching band and choir at that time. Uh, and um, I was Roman Catholic at the time, and I went up to the choir loft because I can read music and I can sing bass and baritone and a bit of tenor and they welcomed me, right? So I was, as uh, the homily was going on, of which I could not understand a single word, I, I saw uh, in front of, like, to the, as you're looking at the iconostas, to the right of it, a crowd of people. And I saw, you know, kind of crowd of people, but then, like, they've pulled back from the priest and one other person. I didn't know what was going on. And so I turned to my friend and said, what, what's going on down there? You know, was, he goes, oh, that's confession. That's they're hearing confessions, and I just had like uh, my mind blown because here I saw I saw a confession happening, and I saw we often think confusion uh, I think of confession simply as personal, but there's a communal aspect, and I saw this. I actually saw someone being healed by Christ right in front of me, 
you know, and I, and it just kind of, I was became so excited about that. And, and I, and I think that's one aspect of, of going to confession in that manner, because uh, it actually states within the ritual that they're to confess their sins before an icon of our Lord or the gospel book, the priest is to be beside them, even to put the hand around them. Although to, in today's world, that's precarious. And, um, and the priest makes it very clear that it is to the Lord whom you are speaking, not to me. You know, I'm here simply as a priest to hear your confession on behalf of the Lord. Father Daniel, you mentioned that as a minister of the Lord. But, uh, and, and to receive that confession, to receive that contrition, and to, in the apostolic gift that has been given, to either forgive or, if need be, withhold, uh, which is a very rare thing to happen. So that's one, I think, the physicality and the openness to that. When it's out in the open, I don't think that any sort of legalism can actually be there. Um, you have to protect for you know, privacy, and if there's people singing, that's a guaranteed privacy. The second is to, uh, I think, um, the second point is this, um, and I'll just, I'll just use this, uh, a, a real-life example. Um, it happened in a confessional, by the way, but uh, this this young woman came and she had been away from the church for close to 20 years. And uh, she was invited back by a friend um, and um, she had been coming to church for a number of weeks, maybe a couple of months already by then. And she uh, just simply, she said at, at the beginning, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to do this. And I said, well, you, you, you mustn't be afraid because, because the only one who's here is the Lord and, and me as his priest, you know, and um, there's no judgment. I think that's important even to say there's no judgment, you know, even, even in the ritual. This is um, at the back of the service of penitence in a, a book called Repentance and Confession. Um, it says right here, the priest shall say in a cheerful voice, right? Uh, my brother, my sister, be not ashamed that you have come to God and to me, for it is not to me that you confess, but to the divine physician before whom you stand. And when we use that language of divine physician, who's for healing, right? Um, I think that that's what warmed her. She made her confession. And as a priest, I've been hearing for 29 years, <laughs> and uh, as a priest, sometimes you just befuddled as to what to say and i remember there's there's a quiet and i said inside lord what should i say and all of a sudden i said well welcome home and she broke down in tears it happened to be the very words that she needed to hear unbeknownst to me welcome home and 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 when we approach confession the priest first i think because his attitude uh, is going to be formed by what he believes confession to be. Um, Father, you mentioned that, you know, it's the sins are not for mine, for me to remember. Uh, as much as I can remember, I, I can't remember this, the sins of, of the good people. Maybe there's one or two, but I figure that the Lord has allowed me to retain that only that I may become an intercessor for them for a period of time until that, until that fades. But 
I, I suppose that the <laughs> if 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 a priest looks at sins like an Emmanuel, like if if you've robbed a store of a candy bar and this deserves a, a you know this that or the other thing, or you've committed adultery, therefore. Uh, you can't receive communion for 17.76 years or anything like this. There's type of manuals like this. This is very, very legalistic, but it, there's no involvement of the person of the priest as a priest within the ministry of, of that. Today's gospel, today's gospel leads to an insight of the approach of the priest. And Metropolitan Anthony Bloom makes this observation that it's not just looking to the power of Christ to heal, but looking at his compassion as well. How he asks those questions. How long has this been? He who knows everything. How long has this been in order to elicit a response of faith? And the words, "I, Lord, I believe, help my, help my unbelief, right? So I, I believe that as much as we as priests are constantly for ourselves and for our, 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 our parishes are seeking the compassion of Christ for our own people, then in the confessional, we won't be legalistic and, and the, therefore will be a calming voice uh, to allay the fears that those who have had past experiences, and there are bad experiences. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I think important for us to teach from the, from the pulpit about confession not not just in the confessional, but from the pulpit, and to, to detail it for people about how our loving God, compassionate and merciful, is waiting for us. Uh, and um, it's hard to admit our sins, yes, but uh, the restoration is beyond that hardship. Yeah. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Thank you very much, Father Michael. It's a beautiful uh, reflection. Father Deacon Anthony, um, to you next. I want to talk about how we as uh, Eastern Catholics approach uh, penance. Um, for our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, the concept of receiving a penance is kind of a, a part of their approach to the sacrament. You know, you go, you receive absolution, but you're kind of hanging out in this limbo type of phase until you do your penance. Um, for us as Byzantine Christians, Penance is kind of an optional part of, of the sacrament. Um, it certainly can be given, um, but it's not, you know, it's not mandatory to be given. So uh, what's our unique approach to penance in, in connection with this mystery? So what both Father Michael and Father Daniel said about um, confession, reconciliation being about healing, that really is the key. Uh, the whole mystery of reconciliation is a mystery of healing. And in the Eastern churches, the Eastern tradition, that's always been the main emphasis. It's an experience of healing. Now, in the West, there was a period of time in which they kind of moved away from that language. And they talked about it more in terms of temporal punishment, you know, and, and forgiveness and satisfaction. And in that particular paradigm, you know, you had to perform a, an act of penance to satisfy your temporal punishment. So what happened in the West was um, you had these detailed manuals that were written in order to say what penance was appropriate for what sin, because the issue there was how do you make up for the, for the sin accumulated, and how do you, you know, deal with, with satisfying justice for it? 
So that became very much the emphasis in the West, never in the East. And in fairness, today, the, the Western church has really moved away from that to a large degree. Uh, their language is much more like ours today. But in the East, it was always about healing. And the priest was always viewed as the physician of souls. You, you see that language a lot in the Eastern tradition. The priest is the physician of souls. Just like you go to a, a medical doctor to get physical healing, you go to the priest to get spiritual healing. And as a physician of souls, uh, penance was always seen as the medicine that the physician would prescribe. So in the East, uh, penance, when it was and is given out, is always seen primarily as a remedy. It's something that's designed to help you to, to heal from the damage of sin in your life, or to give you the strength you need to be freed from slavery to sin. So it's seen as a medicine. Whenever you go to the doctor and you know, he, he or she treats you, the doctor doesn't always prescribe something. There are many times you can go to the doctor and get treatment without having medication prescribed or remedy prescribed. In the East, it's the same way when you go to confession. Uh, there may not be a situation in which a remedy must be prescribed. And in those cases, the priest may not give a penance. But it really comes back to the whole idea of healing. It's about healing in the East more so than anything else. Very good. Thank you, Father Deacon Anthony. Um, yeah, I'm just pondering on that. I think, you know, going back to what Father and, uh, Father Daniel and Father Michael were talking about and their, their experience with this, this mystery, um, I can remember in my own life of some really significant encounters with the mystery of repentance where the priest, um, in his kind of discernment, could see I was already carrying a lot of pain. Um, and he offered to do the penance for me. Um, and I thought in terms of that, it just shows a pastor's heart, you know, and that accompaniment and that healing, um, you know, oftentimes the people, you know, the doctors and nurses that do treat um, physical illness. And I, I'm thinking particularly of the doctors and nurses serving in Ukraine right now, um, you know, dealing with war injuries. Um, they take on that pain that their patients have, you know, and they suffer with them, that, that compassion, right? As part of the medical profession, that compassion is also very part and parcel of the church's approach to the mystery of repentance. So very, very important. All right, Father Daniel, I want to turn up, turn the apple cart a bit. Um, so many people, and, and we've all had those occasions where we've, we've sought out um, uh, a confessor um, because they don't know me, right? We go to that other parish because that priest doesn't know me and I can make my confession and wipe the slate clean. Um, but really that's not part of our Eastern tradition. Um, in fact, um, you know, the, the great monastic fathers, the desert fathers, um, and really, in general, our spiritual tradition encourage us to foster a relationship with a regular confessor, right? So what spiritual benefit comes from having a regular confessor? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think, so I look at it like this. The prayer of forgiveness, uh, and, and the one that I typically use uh, is, it, it mentions the, the penitent by name. 
you know, and, and I even say, you may, Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, by the grace and mercies of his love for mankind, forgive you, insert name, all of your sins. And I, Daniel, an unworthy priest, by his power given to me, by him, do forgive and absolve all your sins. I, I look at that calling forth the name. Now, of course, in all of our mysteries, we give the mysteries according to the name of the person. And so they hear their name and they hear that it's the Lord who's forgiving them, right? You know, it, it, that's, that's, a, that's a very uh, special moment. You, and, and that's, I think, one of the things that is a benefit of not being behind the screen, right? Because Christ calls us by name, you know, he calls us and he heals us by name as well. Uh, I think about confession a lot like uh, the raising of Lazarus. You know, our Lord stands at the cave and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. You know, as a priest, we are speaking the name of the penitent in the cave of their heart. And they are resurrected by God's grace spiritually. It's a powerful moment. You know, it's a, it's a moment like the raising of Lazarus. Uh, spiritually, they, they come forth from, from the cave. They are raised to life again. That's, you know, it, it risks becoming something transactional, I think, if you go out and shop for a priest. Uh, you know, if you're just looking for a priest to, you know, because they don't know me and, and you know, I, I, most of the priests that I talk to and, and have talked to, and they say, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, when it comes to confession, you know, you, you think, oh, I've got this really unique sin, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, maybe, maybe not, you know, um, there's only a certain limit to the variety of, of ways that we can, we can fall. Uh, and, uh, but the, the main thing is that when you're coming, you're coming before Christ, and to, to the extent that I can say it again, you know, this and, and what Father has said and what I've said and Father Deacon Anthony, you know, this is, you are coming to Christ, the divine physician. And, uh, and you should feel that joy of the resurrection when you, when you leave, you know, your, your life has been healed. You have been resurrected in soul. And uh, St. John Chrysostom says it's not even to the angels that this power has been given to forgive sins as mighty as the angels are it's given only to lowly priests who are sinful by the way and as father michael mentioned we we go to confession yeah you know and it is humbling i i i take off my scufia you know and i take off my cross and i go in just in my cassock and i lay my sins before the lord and my brother priest it is a humbling moment but you know what that's that's the christian life uh, so, so I guess that, that would be the thing I would say is, you know, if you're shopping for a priest, you're, you're turning it into a transaction. If you go to your priest who, who is your pastor, uh, who, who knows you, who can call you by name, uh, that, that I think has, it engenders more of a healing moment in, in reconciliation with the family of God, uh, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Father Daniel. Thank you. Um, our Lord's words, do not be afraid, uh, spring to my mind. Um, so easy to do with the mystery of repentance is to approach with fear. Um, but our Lord is constantly telling us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to approach him. So, all right. Our last question concerning the mystery of repentance, but I think it's an important one. Uh, we've spoken a lot about 
what the mystery of repentance is. And this is for anybody on the panel to just jump in. Uh, I think we need to talk a little bit about what the mystery of repentance is not. Um, what does it not replace? Um, because sometimes people can go to confession and be thinking they're going to receive one type of healing, um, but it's they don't. They're, they're, they're looking to get out of it something that it can't give. So I think we need to, to clarify that and, and discuss that a little bit. So whoever wants to jump in, feel free. I'll go first. Yes. Um, I would say that there are those who come to confession to complain about others. So it's a complete misuse uh, and, and misunderstanding of, of confession. There have been a few times, very few, but enough to be counted of um, some people coming and telling me the sins of everybody else in their family or the congregation. And I would say, well, what about what about any sins that you've committed? Let, let's talk about that before the Lord, you know. And um, so this is where uh, the priest needs to be able to have some training and be able to ask these questions, uh, kind of almost uh, a natural. Um, listen, if 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 you're a priest of of the Lord and and you you want to really have your people healed by his his love and his mercy, then you're going to be asking the type of questions you'd ask yourself uh, for uh, preparing for communion in order to help people like that. Then there are people who actually confess their sins, but they're looking more for either psychological assistance or spiritual direction. Some people confuse the two. Um, and, uh, and that's where you're, I, I think, um, I think that's important for not only for the priest to understand, but for, for people. And sometimes difficult uh, to be to have to tell somebody because you have a, a lineup of 30 people for a confession to say, I'm sorry, we, we can't spend the time to do this, what you need right now. And that's beyond the scope of this holy mystery. And I would love to be able to have me set up a meeting with you afterwards in order to talk about these spiritual matters or to learn more about their psychological uh, need and be able and if it's that of the latter then be able to help direct to someone who can help them because as a priest that does not necessarily mean that i'm a a great counselor a human counselor you know um but uh but, but so it's it's important i think those are a few areas where um there's some concern and and teaching would help with that i'm i think yeah so i'll let the others answer now you can Anthony, Father Daniel. Yeah, um, I, I do have something to add. I think one thing too we have to recognize is that confession um, is not necessarily an effective treatment for addictions, and that's something I think we need to really emphasize. And I'll tell you why: it, it, it can play a huge role in healing, but very often more support is needed than that. So, I work at a college. I work with a lot of young people. And many of them come and talk with me about their, their faith issues and the struggles they're going through. And one thing I've encountered is this. A lot of people go to confession and they confess an addictive behavior of some kind that they feel powerless to stop. And they go to confession again and again and again, confessing the same addictive behavior. And they become very, very embarrassed. They feel very, very humiliated 
And in many cases, they begin to feel hopeless and they fall into despair. I've seen that. And uh, I'm going to get, I'm not going to get graphic, but I want to bring up something that's very uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, one problem that people are dealing with today, and young people especially are struggling with this, is pornography. Uh, pornography is absolutely everywhere, everywhere. And it's so easy to get. All you need is a phone. And what I'm finding is that people are getting addicted to it. Now, you, you may think, well, that's a weak person getting addicted to pornography. No. Uh, pornography has been shown to create chemical reactions in the brain. When you view a por pornographic image or a video, it releases dopamine, and it becomes addictive, just as addictive as, say, heroin or another hard drug of some kind. So I've encountered a lot of people who have become addicted to pornography, and they go to confession again and again confessing this, and they fall into despair, and they just give up. They give up on faith, and they give up on the church. And what I would say is there are wonderful 12-step programs that I've known to people who've been helped with dramatically. Um, there are 12-step programs. There's addiction counseling. Uh, confession really can't take the place of that. But I think we need to be clear on this because otherwise people will begin to think uh, the confession just isn't working or they're doing it wrong, when really sometimes there's a larger issue that needs to be addressed. Very, very important point, Deacon Anthony. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Father Daniel? Yeah. Uh, whew. So I two, two thoughts come to mind. One, confession is not the beginning of repentance. Confession is the culmination of repentance and, and, uh, and a life lived in repentance. There are some people who kind of see it as, and this kind of goes back to a little bit of the transactional uh, nature of that well you know i'll just go and take my dirty laundry in and i'll get it clean and i'll take it out you know and then i'll be i'll get all clean you know and and uh, i don't have to worry about it until then you know um i remember reading uh one of my favorite western saints is saint maximilian colby and uh he has um there's a little booklet published by marytown press called will to love and Colby is interesting because he struggled with scrupulosity uh, early on, which, which is, a, is, is a frequent challenge for a lot of people, especially when they start to take their spiritual life seriously, and they start to become aware of sins, and they go, oh, I don't, you know, and they have, they, they, they've had this pattern of living a certain way, and now all of a sudden they're trying to confront it, and it's a struggle, um, and so they might tend to become scrupulous. I'm not saying he was a, was a deep sinner, but I'm just saying that that can happen sometimes. And he, in, in the most hopeful way, talks about the necessity of in the very moment that you sin, turn to the Lord and, and ask him for his mercy. And, and I, you know, I think there's a, uh, that's, that's the moment, the moment that we fall, that's the moment we turn to the Lord. Confession should be sort of the culmination of that of, the, of that life of repentance, and then you you come to to this uh, to this mystery to be healed, and to have the healing of the prayer of the church. Some people despair because they feel like, you know, if I get struck by lightning, I'm I'm going to go to hell because I committed this sin. And it's like, well, did you repent? Did you turn to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness and healing out of love for Him? Well, yeah. Well, then you're forgiven. Now, now you know, it, you should go to confession, obviously approach the mystery before you approach the chalice, 
just to make sure, you know, that, that the, you have the prayers and the healing of the church. But this idea that somehow or another you aren't forgiven, like God is, is, is there saying, mm, yeah, well, you know, you didn't uh, confess. You didn't go to confession before this, even though you asked for my mercy and forgiveness. God is not stubborn with his mercy. <laughs> he wants to pour it out on us. You know, he knows we need it. So, so again, I think the, the reductionism to sort of this transactional sort of thing where I go and I deposit my dirty laundry and I get clean clothes out at the end, I think misses the whole point of what this is meant to be. And so, um, so I think there is a, uh, there's a need for us to, to deepen our sense of what repentance is, that it is a turning to the Lord, and we can do it in, in the very moment that we sin, and, um, and just cry out to the Lord. This is what the, the, and I know we'll get into this when we start talking about the spiritual life, you know, penthos, compunction, the gift of tears, you know, the tears of repentance. We, it's written about in, in, the, in St. John of the Ladder. You know, this joyful sorrow of, uh, and, and repentance that leads to praise. So, so let's, let's embrace that spirit uh, and not engage in this. Uh, and again, just turning it into uh, kind of a, you know, deposit our sins, you know, get grace as a result. That's, that's not what confession is about. Yes. Very good. Thank you, Father Daniel. Um, before we move on, uh, we do have a question from our participants, and this is a really good one. This is a good question. So I wanna make sure that we, we cover this one because uh, I think we're having a very good conversation about the mystery of repentance. So I, I'd like to prolong it just for a little bit longer. And this is for anybody on the panel, but it's, it is very important, uh, an important distinction. So Turner asks, we often pray for the forgiveness of sins, voluntary and involuntary. Could you please explain the category of involuntary sin? What exactly is it? What are some paradigm examples of such sins? And why do such sins need to be forgiven if they are involuntary? Can I jump in? Please do. So I think we have to understand what sin actually is. And very often we tend to think of sin as a person you know, breaking a rule or something that you, you experience guilt for. I did this bad thing, and now I have guilt for it. If you look at it that way, involuntary sin doesn't make any sense. If it's something you had no control over, why would you be guilty of it, right? But the word sin in Greek actually means something totally different. The word sin does not mean to break a rule. It means to miss the mark. That's the meaning of the word sin, to miss the mark. So imagine, for example, you're in an archery tournament, and there's a target, and you're shooting at it. You want to hit the target, right? But sometimes you may miss it. You miss the mark. Well, in the spiritual life, the mark, the target we're aiming at is theosis, you know, becoming godlike beings, coming to share in God's own divine supernatural life. And that's a journey. That's a journey. We're walking in the direction of God to become more and more like God. Sometimes, though, we go off the path. We're no longer heading towards the target, but we go off the path. Just like the arrow can miss the target, we can move a little bit off the path and go in the wrong direction. Anything that really takes us off that path towards theosis, that's what sin really is. And it is possible to, to do that involuntarily. Uh, there are things you can do that take you off that path without you necessarily consciously thinking about it or something that's become habitual. So in that sense, 
it may not necessarily be something that you're experiencing personal guilt for, but it's still a sin because it takes you off the path. So I think if we look at it that way, it makes a bit more sense. Absolutely. Very good distinction. Father Michael? I would add to Father Anthony's um, words that so there are some things that we may say or do that actually may harm or wound or offend another. Uh, and um, it's not intentional whatsoever. There's no act of the will on that. And um, it may be due to carelessness on our part. Um, uh, but there are, there are that that does happen, you know, um, uh, in, in, in our lives, you know, you can, I won't, I won't give a concrete example, but uh, uh, that, that happens. So um, we can harm others uh, unintentionally. And that can be an involuntary sin. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would only add, uh, again, quickly, quickly two things. Um, there is that prayer that we have uh, in, the, uh, in the usual prayers, usual beginning prayers. Most Holy Trinity, have mercy on us. O Lord, cleanse us of our sins. O Master, pardon our transgressions. O Holy One, come to us and heal our infirmities for the sake of your name. Uh, you know, within that category, I think maybe un under transgressions, there is that, that aspect of involuntary sin that just may be a weakness uh, that, uh, or something that we, uh, that probably also falls in the category of infirmity, but, but something that isn't necessarily something we deliberately choose, but yet the Lord is, is leading us, as, as Father Deacon Anthony said so well, towards that theosis, that divine likeness, and anything that, that is not in representative of that likeness, that's what we want the Holy Spirit to transform in our life. Uh, the second thing I will mention is that uh, there's a wonderful monk, I think we all know, Father, Max, uh, Father Maximus Davies uh, of Holy Resurrection Monastery. He did his master's thesis on this topic of involuntary sin, uh, and it's tremendous. I read it years ago, and I wish I still had it, but uh, the good news is that OLTV uh, in their new streaming service has a whole series of talks and he walks through the whole patristic roots. And I, I just started going through this. It's interesting that this came up. I just started going through this and it's marvelous. So OLTV, uh, Jack Fiegel's, um, uh, the work that reader Jack Fiegel does, uh, it's worth getting into because he contrasts a little bit of some of the Augustinian mentality uh, I, I say more of a hyper Augustinian because I love Augustine. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not a person to beat up on Augustine. Uh, but I do think there is um, there is an aspect of sort of a hyper Augustinianism around a, a, a view of human nature that isn't healthy. <laughs> and and I think the, the sort of the corrective, the Eastern corrective, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, without descending into Pelagianism. But correcting some of the anti-Pelagianism, extremism of Augustine, I think gives us a good balance, and uh, and I highly recommend Father Father Maximus's uh, teaching on that. Very good, thank you, Father Daniel. Yeah. All right, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about the mystery of repentance. Um, now let's transition to talking about the mystery of holy anointing. So in Christ our Pascha, this is talked about in paragraphs 462 to 469. Um, so 462 to 469. Um, and one, one point that really struck me um, was in Christ our Pascha 466, which discussed the communal aspect 
of the mystery of holy anointing. Um, so often we we think about holy anointing as being very private, you know, something private between the sick person and the priest. You know, we have this image of the priest rushing to the hospital and doing an anointing, and certainly those things happen. Um, but the way Christ our Pascha presents it, um, holy anointing is a very communal thing. Um, so, Father Daniel, why is that communal communal aspect of anointing so important? And how do we as Byzantines witness to that importance? Well, I, I think, first of all, we need to say that the biblical witness on this is very clear. If you look at the epistle of St. James, where we have the mystery of anointing first mentioned, and you're calling the elders together uh, to say the prayer for the healing of, of soul and body, essentially, which is very much part of the prayer that we pray. So, so there wasn't this sense of, um, like you're saying, sort of more of the privatized aspect. Well, of course, in, even in confession, it wasn't this privatized aspect like uh, in the early church and also as, as Father Michael mentioned. Um, so, so it's really the church coming together to pray for the healing of the individual. And ideally, it, it would involve uh, multiple priests coming. Um, I, I know very recently we had a, a priest uh, who died uh, in our eparchy, died of cancer. And uh, the, the priests of the area came together uh, to do a service of anointing uh, for this uh, be before his death, obviously. Uh, and it was, it was such a beautiful expression of priestly fraternity to come and pray for this priest and their pictures of it on Facebook. And, and, uh, but that, that is the, that, that's, that's the norm. So we've kind of departed from the norm but for pastoral reasons, you know, for, you know, the, the, this, this character of the individual priest coming in, you know, and, and I get calls to go to the hospital. I'm part of the, you know, the consortium, if you will, of the Catholic churches in this area. We've got like 20 or 30,000 Catholics and only five priests. So I'm on call to the hospital from time to time to go anoint. And it, it's one of the, I, I love this part of my ministry, by the way, to, to go in and to be with people and to, and to pray with them and anoint them. And, but so that does happen individually. Now, the other part of it, too, that I think is important is that we don't just have these services of, of the anointing at the hospital bed or at the deathbed. Um, we're, we're, I think the East tends to be far more generous with the use of this particular mystery for the healing of soul and body. Uh, and uh, we will even, of course, we have the, uh, the one service a year, uh, but it's actually it can be more than that. Uh, during uh, during the Holy and, and Great Week, where we have on Wednesday uh, the the anointing, uh, everybody gets anointed. Uh, everybody comes forward to receive the Holy anointing, but we don't just do it then. We do it uh, at a particular feasts. We have, for instance, in Seattle, north of us, they have a beautiful icon and a great devotion to Saint Pantaleon. And um, I've gone up, and we have multiple priests and we get people coming up and we're all just anointing people and and it's for the for the celebration and honor of the feast of saint pantaleon uh we do anointings at feast days sometimes or at least at shrines and pilgrimages um union town has a great tradition of doing that we do it here at our lady perpetual help we'll give the anointing and uh you know of course i think some of the reticence has to do with the fact that it's not just for the healing of body it's for the healing of soul, because with this comes the forgiveness of sins. Now, granted, a person should have the disposition that they are truly repentant, and if they have anything, it's a more weighty matter that they will come 
to uh, mystery of confession. I will oftentimes hear confessions after the anointing service if anybody wants to come and make a confession. Uh, but it's a, uh, I, I think that communal sense originates in the epistle. I think it's part of the organic part of the celebration, the full celebration of the mystery. But I think its application uh, oftentimes is in a, in, a, in a communal setting. Very good. Um, speaking of that connection between holy anointing and the forgiveness of sins, um, Father Michael, could you make that connection a little bit more explicit for us? Because certainly in, in the mystery of holy anointing, we're asking for God's healing grace upon this person. So how does that asking for physical healing relate also to the forgiveness of sins? Well, I can't do better than Mark's gospel. We read it a few weeks ago of the four friends taking the paralyzed man, ripping the roof open, dropping him down before the Lord, and, uh, and the Lord having um, that, uh, knowing the mind and the hearts uh, of those uh, who, who are watching, um, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and take up your mat, right? Um, he just said, go take up your your sins are forgiven take up your mat and walk and and uh, so he makes very clearly the connection of forgiveness of sins and of healing in this case it was physical healing and um you know it's interesting because the 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 holy anointing is not necessarily just for physical healing and this is we think of that you know um I agree with Father Daniel that the East has had, I think, in its in her history, uh, a little more liberal application of this holy mystery amongst the faithful of God's Church than what the the Latin Church has had. Although I, to be fair, the Latin Church I think has changed in the last twenty years. I'll say um, it was very rigorous on it being a you have to be very sick for whatever it is, uh, like, like you're going to die sort of thing, whereas the East has understood to be something very serious. So I, I've had um, people who I remember a very beautiful woman, ancient of days, she, she could sing. So every day she was at church, she just sang her heart out. And then she told me, Father, I got last time I went to see the doctor, I have pancreatic cancer. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, what is your prognosis? And he said, two months. I said, that's not much time. She goes, oh, that's okay. I'm ready. And um, I said, well, Helen, would you like to receive holy anointing as a sacrament? And she said, well, well I thought that meant you're, you're dying. And I said, oh, no, it's just for serious illness. And for most illnesses, not the common flu or anything like that, or, or you know, sniffles. But And she said, sure. So the next day, uh, after the liturgy, we set a chair up in the church, just as it is prescribed within the ritual. And I asked her to sit down. And uh, when the time came for the anointing, we went to the service. And this is the this is the communal aspect that you are speaking about, Father. Earlier, uh, every you know what happened? Naturally, people got out of their pews, and I might pop a tear because it's just it's just so beautiful. They came up behind her and they all laid hands on her. And if they couldn't reach her, they laid the hands in, for, in, 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 
in the person in front. And it's, and it's not, none of these people have been involved in Pentecostalism or charismatic renewal or like, like me when I was much younger or a few others on this panel. And, uh, you know, so this is very natural. And, um, and she understood, she understood that the Lord was acting her. Did it cure her of her cancer? No. Um, but she understood that there was a healing within. And we have to remember that the forgiveness of sins is indeed the healing of the person. You know, sin is not just some kind of esoteric ideal, which we've broken up in some kind of, you know, airy sort of thing. But sin is me, and I am a psychosomatic being. I am made of body, spirit, and soul. Well, let's go tripartite tonight, okay? And uh, and it affects me. And when when there's sin, I can actually develop um, spiritual illnesses because of of sin. A type of despair. You were talking about addiction earlier, Father Deacon, and um, that can that can happen. And so, uh, simply, the Lord forgives uh, sin and heals whatever that may be. One other example, a new young man in his mid-20s, and uh, I don't know how to describe this, but it was, it was, um, oh, the name just escaped me. Uh, it's a psychological illness. Um, um, oh my goodness. I don't, I don't like being in my 50s and remember, or not remembering these things. Um, it has, it's a type of illness where there's delusions and so forth. So if you can remember, name a psychological illness, one of you. Uh, it's it's a, schizophrenia. Thank schizophrenia. you. Just me asking. Yeah. It's a type of schizophrenia, right? Yeah. Which is a big grab bag of Milton illness. But mm-hmm. um, in, more, in one of his more cognitive moments, I said, would you like to receive the holy mystery of anointing? And he said, anything, Father, to help me. And so... Um, we grabbed a few other people, went to the chapel and the seminary in Ottawa, and uh, went through the service and everything. Um, and so that that was a, a and there's a forgiveness of sins. Now there's an influence of the Roman Catholic, um, a very scholastic moment, I would say, and 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 it got into the Byzantine Church, especially through Peter Mohila, um, of uh, that you know you have to go to confession before you receive uh, holy anointing. There was actually a restriction at one time, but that's no longer the case. No longer the case, and and the the the, the East understands that there's a forgiveness. It's right in the prayer. Let me let me read it to you. It's right in the prayer, the first anointing by the first priest, where you are praying to the Lord. You are without beginning, eternal, holy of holies, who sent down your only begotten Son to heal every disease and every infirmity of our souls and bodies. Send down your Holy Spirit, sanctify this oil, and grant that it may bring full pardon from sin to your servant, and you name that person who is to be anointed, and the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. So you can't get a better example than what our Lord did, I think. And, um, and I think that's the forgiveness of sins, the healing of the whole person are connected intimately, and you can't separate them. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Father Michael. Thank you. All right, Deacon Anthony. Um, 
we've discussed before in, in our uh, webinars about the sacraments um, that the physicality of the sacraments is very important, right? We use the physical signs and symbols, you know, water, bread, wine, oil, um, because they're physical. Um, now, particularly with the sacrament of holy anointing, the symbol is oil. And in the ancient world, um, oil was used frequently at, for, for health. Um, so there was a direct connection. So I guess pastorally today, how do we make that connection clearer for our people who don't receive, you know, they don't go to the doctor and get a tincture of olive oil and, you know, you know, so how do, how do we make that physicality uh, resonate with our people nowadays? Yeah, it's one of those things requires some education, some explanation, especially about history. So, you know, historically in the ancient world, oil was associated with healing. Um, specifically olive oil, right? In ancient Greece, in the ancient Mediterranean world, uh, olive oil was seen as having tremendous healing properties. And for that reason, it was extremely valuable. Uh, like Homer, for example, in his writings referred to olive oil as liquid gold. It was that important. And Hippocrates, you know, the father of Western medicine, he talked about the, the healing attributes of olive oil. He actually... Uh, he had like a list of 60 different ailments that you'd prescribe olive oil for, uh, both to ingest it or to rub it on yourself. So, you know, for us, the anointing with oil, um, the oil itself, you know, symbolically represents the healing uh, that's taking place on a more spiritual level, so that the two are very much connected. One thing that's interesting, though, and I, I, I find this fascinating, is that the word for oil in Greek is eleon. And the church fathers in the East would comment on how eleon is very, very similar to eleison, uh, which is the word for mercy in Greek, you know, kyrie eleison. And when they would talk about God's mercy, they'd always, some of them would always reference back to the idea of oil. Uh, the oil was used for healing, and they would say that God's mercy was a healing mercy. You know, we tend to think of mercy as being about forgiveness. I did something wrong, show me mercy. But they would talk about mercy being a healing thing, like the oil that heals us. So I think that's a beautiful connection as well. Absolutely. Father Michael, Father Daniel, anything to add? Uh, a couple of quick thoughts um, to, to kind of build on what Father Deacon Anthony says. I think it's noteworthy that the placement of the anointing mirrors the anointing of chrismation. Uh, in other words, the Holy Spirit is working through the anointing for the healing of soul and body, and it's strengthening with grace that which is given you know, when we were Christified, when, when we were uh, you know, made, made in the, uh, or, or the likeness of Christ was healed in us and we became bearers of the Spirit. So that same Holy Spirit is coming through the ministry of the church in the anointing to strengthen us in soul and body by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's almost as if the, the portals that were there for the anointing and to receive the Holy Spirit now have been reopened for that, for that same grace to come through the Holy Anointing. I, I think there's a, there's a very interesting uh, connection to that. I think also uh, one, one thought I do have is don't wait. Um, I, had, I had a situation recently 
uh, where I got a call. It was to one of the memory care centers uh, nearby. And um, I, I left within, you know, 10 minutes. I have to go get things ready. And I got in the car and left and it took me about 20 minutes to get there. And and uh, then, of course, I had to go through all the, the, you know, COVID stuff to get regulation to get in and had to put a shield, a face shield and Darth Vader mask on and go, you know, to this poor man who needed anointing. Well, by the time I got there, he had died. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm generally very quick, you know, to, to get to a place. It took me about 35 minutes. He had died uh, almost right after I had left. Uh, the rectory. He had been dying for weeks, weeks, and uh, and I had to, you know, I the the CNAs who were there and the nurses, they said, oh, the family wants you to anoint him. Well, you know, he had been dead so long, it wasn't possible. You can only anoint the living; you can't anoint the dead. So I I said the I said Apanagita, and I I also you know blessed the body with holy water, and I I did the things that I could do. Uh, but it's a tragic situation. And, uh, you know, if it's important for him to be anointed. So I think that mindset, and I think it is a, a more of a, a, a poorly catechized, I don't want to just blame it on the West. It's, 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 it's people who are poorly catechized to think you only get this when you're about to you know, exit stage right. And that's not the time for the anointing. I mean, it is the time if you need it, but it's, it's really a time, you know, to prepare for, for death. And, and, uh, you know, if, if a person is actively dying uh, or in the process of dying or, or seems like in the next week, so call your priest, get them anointed, don't delay. The last thing I'll say is that I have, I have had the pleasure and the great grace to witness a miraculous healing through this. So this isn't just, you know, signs and symbols and things like this. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't say this, uh, it, it don't, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, Father Daniel is, like, oh, I laid my hands on people and they were healed. Nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I did have that happen once. And I'm sure Father Michael in 30 years has had a number of experiences like this too. Um, I had a, a woman who was actively dying. I mean, like within hours, she was to die. I came in and anointed her. I came back the next day to do another anointing uh, and one of the nurses saw me in the elevator. I wear my cassock and I go in and they're like, is that the guy? <laughs> is that, is that him? And I'm like, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what did I do? You know? And, uh, and they said, you know, that woman you anointed yesterday who was actively dying. I said, yeah, she's, she's all better now. She's up, uh, she got her own room and she's no, <laughs> no longer in this thing. She's not actively dying anymore. I'm like, well, well, praise God, you know? I said, it's, it's a combination of, you know, uh, Jesus Christ in the sacraments and good health care. So, so don't, don't think that this is just something that's always oh, just one of those um, rites of passage out of life. It's, it's the Holy Spirit moving powerfully through this. And I, I am in wonder uh, that these things do happen, but they do happen. Um. You'll hear you'll hear this in um, a documentary on anointing of the sick that Sister Anne Lazak is putting together. Um, I had given I told this story for a um, kind of a I guess it was pre Christmas I, I guess it was for the Eparchy of Toronto online 
and uh, she she wanted to include it. So I'll I'll, t- I'll just do it quickly. I was called to the hospital here in Winnipeg, uh, and uh, to the neurology department. There I went in and. I went to. I always go see the nursing station always first to, because they have a good handle of what's going on and who to be aware of amongst the family members that may be, you know, trying to get money out of their parents or something who are dying and stuff like that. It, it's helpful. And so I asked. I said, "Oh, well, he's brain dead. There, there's his body has not given up. The heart still beats. He's still breathing, but the brain there's no activity. And so we're just waiting for that to happen. His daughter's called in." and her husband, they'll be here in a few moments. I said, great. So I went in and I really believe I, I, that uh, I just talked to the person as if they were awake because they are a human being. And, and just because the doctors say he's brain dead, I, I believe that there's more than just the physicalities of, of life. Uh, and so I, I just, my name is Father Michael. I'm going to anoint you at the request of your daughter. Um, I understand you, you're Ukrainian Catholic and ta-da. the daughter showed up, the husband showed up a few minutes later, we went through the service, I asked her to read the epistle, which is from James, and she realized as she's reading it, you know, if there's someone sick among you, they are to call the presbyters of the church who will come and uh, uh, anoint with holy oil and make a prayer for healing, and she realized this is happening right now, and uh, so she was all became emotional. And then it came time for the healing, for the anointing. And I started on his forehead with, a, with and, uh, going through the, the prayer for healing and his eyes and his nose. And when, as soon as I started doing his mouth, his eyes started to flitter. And the daughter said, did you see that? And I said, yes, I did. And then I continued with the ears and the chest and the hands. And then uh, because he's in the hospital, his feet, I could get his feet. And by the time... I had finished, his eyes were wide open, and he said his daughter's name. Now, of course, uh, um, I had learned from the great father, Bob Bedard, the founder of the Companions of the Cross. He taught me in high school, not to be at all surprised at what the Lord does in our midst. He taught me a very good spirit of sobriety. Inside, I was going... Lord, this is absolutely amazing. I can't believe that you're doing this right now. Blah, 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 blah. It's just going crazy. But I was very calm on the outside. And I said, I think maybe you should call the nurses. And to which the son-in-law went off and the nurses came. They screamed and they went and got doctors. And the doctors just arrived. And I was taking leave so that because obviously it's a very emotional moment. Uh, he was crying. She was crying and so forth. I met her a few months later maybe six months, at some function in one of the parishes. And um, she came up to me and I said, oh, how is your father? And she goes, he died. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, may, may he rest in peace. And uh, oh, I said, Vichnai Pamyat in Ukrainian. But, uh, and um, she says, uh, father, I want you to know, he died maybe a month after you, you, you anointed him in the hospital. But in that month, we reconciled from decades of hurtful language and behavior between each other. And, and there we see the effect of the uh, holy anointing, of that holy mystery. It's beyond our comprehension. It's ineffable that this can happen. But the Lord did this for the salvation of not only two people, but 
now through a documentary, many others will hear about this, you know, and um, I just, I'm just in awe at what the Lord does. I'm not at all surprised. It's like I'm not as at all surprised in the con, in the confession of hearing sins. There's nothing that surprises me anymore, not after not after 29 years, and 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 even though I may be very excited inside, I mean, if we really believe that God lives among us, this Nami Boa, God is with us, then we should actually expect these sorts of things to happen. We really should, and when they do happen. Not to not to be extremely joyful, but joyful and to acknowledge that this is because of his great compassion and mercy and love for us. Yeah. Amen. Amen. What what beautiful stories from your ministry, Father Michael and Father Daniel, of, of the power of the mystery of holy anointing. Uh, really, it is a, a powerful, powerful mystery. Uh, so powerful that we've come to the end of our time. Um, but before we go, I, I think a, a parting gift should be given to our wonderful audience. So Bianca, if we can do one more book giveaway before we close for the evening, I think that would be very, very fitting. Absolutely. Um, I think you guys know the drill. Pick me in the chat. <laughs> can I just say one word while we're picking me? Of course. I, I want to say that even though Father Michael and I have done the majority of the talking, we've we've got... Uh, a deacon and lay people on this. I I would I want to just highlight the the important role, and Father Michael I think alluded to this uh, that the that the diaconate and the laity have in regards to these two these two mysteries because you know it's not just that you're coming to receive these mysteries. I mean we receive them too. Um, your participation in that I think comes in two primary forms. One is through prayer. One is to pray for the sick, which we should always do, to pray for those, for the repentance of those who need to repent, maybe even to act in ways that are uh, doing representative repentance. You know, there is that Fatima prayer, my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. Ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. That, that idea of entering into that mystery and asking pardon for those who, who need, to re- need to repent, it's a beautiful part of your baptismal priesthood. The second thing, and mine too, uh, the second thing is to, to catechize, to teach, to help people to understand what these mysteries are and, uh, and to come to the priest. You know, that, this is why Father Michael and I are here. Um, you know, the deacon, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of craziness in this world about deacons not wearing clerical garb in hospital ministry. I was a deacon for 12 years. My dad's been a deacon for 14 years. You know, we always wore our clerical garb in the hospital. Why? Because if someone grabbed us and they said, Father, can you hear my confession? I used to always say, well, no, but I, but, but I, or I, said, I can hear your confession. I just can't do anything about it. So let me see if I can find a priest for you. You know, uh, part of the role is to bring people just as the disciples did, like Father mentioned, they brought it through the roof, brought it down to Christ. We need to bring each other to Jesus Christ. So you have an important ministry uh, and don't think it's just simply to be on the receiving end of these mysteries. You have an important ministry as a church, as part of the church and the body of Christ to, uh, to bring people to Jesus Christ. And, and we're there to be the, the instruments of that. Absolutely. Bianca, do we have a winner? 
Yes. Um, so for the final winner tonight, we've got Andrea Casares. Congratulations. Yay. Congratulations. Andrea, we, they will, uh, Bianca will get your address before, before we depart. Stephen oh, asks a question with regard to holy anointing and Morovinya and festive anointing. And is there a difference between the two? Yes, a holy anointing is a holy mystery or a sacrament. And Morovinya would be called, to borrow the terms from the Latin church, a sacramental. And, and um, you may not see it in the actual catechism, but I'll explain that in one of the lessons that are upcoming. Uh, it's a bit later in those lessons, but it will be there. And I'll make sure to mention that uh, because you've you've asked about that, Stephen. Okay. Perfect. Thank you, Father. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. And with that, I think we will uh, bring this session to a close. Our next webinar will be Sunday, April twenty fourth. So we're looking looking forward to uh, you joining us once again. Um, so thank you, everyone, for your participation. Um, for your attention. Uh, again, we cannot continue this ministry um, without our wonderful attendees, because as much as the four of us love talking together, um, we need you, we need your participation. Um, so please do continue to attend these webinars. Please do spread the word. Um, do go to our YouTube channel, spread the links around, um, because we want this to grow, because there is nothing but God's all-embracing grace that we're trying to communicate to people. Um, and in our world right now, people need to hear that message. They need to hear that message that Christ's grace is ready to embrace them and embrace them fully. So that's what we're trying to do. So please help us with that mission by spreading the word. Um, so thank you very much. Any concluding words from our distinguished panelists? Have a blessed Pascha. <laughs> it's coming it's soon. It's coming very quickly. Forgiveness will rise from the grave. Woo! Woo! <laughs> and Father Deacon Anthony, could you lead us in prayer as we close? Certainly. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly King, Advocate, Spirit of Truth, who everywhere present and fill all things, treasure of blessings, bestower of life, Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all that defiles us. And our good one, save our souls. Amen. Amen. Great. Good. Well, thank you, everyone. Glory to Jesus Christ. And everyone have a wonderful evening. We'll see you next month.